0: Hi, I'm Pastor Lori Boucher, and I want to personally welcome you to the HeartStrong Discipleship Podcast. Are you ready to study the Bible together chapter by chapter? If you go to heartstrong.life and sign up for a free membership, you will get access to the full Bible reading plan and all the bonus discipleship content that we have prepared for you. Open up your Bible and get ready to take some notes because God is going to speak to you today. Let's become heartstrong disciples together through the study of God's Word.
1: Good morning, everybody. So wonderful to be with all of you again. Remember last year, I came to you from my closet. This year, I'm coming to you from a different side room. So hopefully, the screen is set back enough so I'm not so up close for you. It makes it a little bit more uh, manageable would have had a much closer view of the beard. So let's get right into it. Um, Our chapter readings for today are found in the book of Exodus. And at this point, we're now past the halfway point in this extraordinary book. Uh, The book of Exodus narrates a remarkable event in ancient history. And scholars have described it various ways. One scholar describes it as the greatest event of divine salvation in the Old Testament. And another scholar describes it as the single most important event in all of Israelite history. So what we're reading and learning about in the book of Exodus, especially the Exodus event itself, is absolutely essential to understanding the God of our salvation, uh, understanding the faith of Israel, and therefore our own faith. In a sense, the history that we're learning about is our own history. Uh, T Desmond Alexander in his commentary, um, he provides a a beautiful summary in, in this way. He says, in the book of Exodus, God not only rescues Israelites from slavery, but more importantly, it highlights how a compassionate and justice seeking God transforms the lives of victimized people so that they may experience life In all its fullness in his holy presence. So, the story of Exodus illustrates an all important paradigm for understanding the nature and goal of divine salvation. And it anticipates an even greater Exodus that will come through Jesus Christ. Even though it is narrating past events, Exodus is speaking to contemporary society as well. It reveals a God who passionately desires to draw himself into an intimate and exclusive relationship with himself. It's one of the most influential books ever written. In the section of Exodus that we're reading today, we're going to be dealing with detailed laws and some challenging passages. But let us not forget the fact that Yahweh, God, has just delivered his people from poverty and slavery, and he's inviting them into a covenant relationship. And this highlights the importance of relationship, which is not only at the heart of Exodus and the Exodus event, uh, but relationship carries all the way through the entire Old Testament storyline. And you will be recognizing that right from the beginning in Genesis one, and we're still seeing it very prominent Uh, right now in where we are in Exodus. So I encourage you today, take a few brief moments to pause, ponder and pray about the fact that the Lord God desires an exclusive relationship with us as a community of followers, which of course includes each one of us as individuals. But God has gone to great lengths to reconcile us to himself. I do not know your life situation or what your struggles or stresses are in life, but I encourage you today to put your trust or to continue putting your trust in the only one who can deliver you, redeem you, and keep you. We're going to learn, and I want you to grasp this this morning, that Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God, and we'll find out that he is merciful and gracious. He is loyal and faithful. He's patient and forgiving. And so as you reflect on that this morning, understanding who God is and in light of who God is and how he has acted in history, how will we respond? So for those of you this morning that need to transition and make your way, carry that thought with you through the day. God has acted in history and in your specific history to redeem you and to enter into an exclusive relationship with you. So how will you respond? For those that need to make their way off the call and continue throughout the day, God bless you, and uh, you have been blessed by God. So go throughout the day and be a blessing to others. As we transition now to our reading, I'll just share very briefly some of the resources that I've used for this teaching. Uh, I give full credit to my seminary uh, professor, Dr. John Kessler. He's my Old Testament seminary professor. Beautiful man of God. Uh, a lot of my notes were taken in his class. A lot of the quotes I've uh, I, I taken from his book, which was the textbook we used for his course. I've often uh, used the essays from a a variety of biblical scholars out of the um, Dictionary of Old Testament Pentateuch, which is a compendium of contemporary biblical scholarship. Um, And then thirdly, I've used uh, the Epic of Eden, which is a Christian entry into the Old Testament written by Sandra Richter. And uh, I would encourage you out of those different um, resources, the book by Sandra Richter, "The Epic of Eden," is an amazing uh, small little book, but very um, accessible and easy to read, and would give you a beautiful introduction into uh, not only the Old Testament but specifically the covenants. And it would be very uh, revealing and insightful if you desire to uh, to access that yourself. So I'll I'll see about uh, posting the uh, the specific details to her book for you. So this morning, we're in Exodus chapter 23 and chapter 24. I'm going to take the time this morning to read through these chapters because for the following three mornings we'll be together, I'm not entirely sure we'll be able to read through uh, our other chapters from 25 to 30. So I want to at least read through these two. And then the other chapters, of course, we will be addressing them, but I'm just not sure we'll read them through verse by verse. So let's start with chapter 23, verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked to act as a malicious witness. You shall not follow a majority in wrongdoing. When you bear witness in a lawsuit, you shall not side with the majority so as to pervert justice. Nor shall you be partial to the poor in a lawsuit. When you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back when you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would hold back from setting it free, you must help to set it free. You shall not pervert the justice due to the poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe. For a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. For six years you shall sow your land and gather its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest in lie fallow, so that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave the wild animals may. You shall do the same with your vineyard and also with your orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, so that your ox and your donkey may have relief, and your home-born slave and the resident alien may be refreshed. Be attentive to all that I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods and do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall hold a festival for me, You shall observe the festival of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. No one shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall observe the festival of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. And you shall observe the festival of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my festival remain until morning. The choicest of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. I am going to send an angel in front of you to guard you on the way, to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Be attentive to him and listen to his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you listen attentively to his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. When my angel goes in front of you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out, You shall not bow down to their gods or worship them or follow their practices, but you shall utterly demolish them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall worship the Lord your God, and I will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. No one shall miscarry or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror in front of you and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you and I will send the pestilence in front of you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year or the land would become desolate and the wild animals would multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will hand over to you the inhabitants of the land, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not live in your land, or they will make you sin against me. For if you worship their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And then he said to Moses, Come up. To the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 pillars corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed oxen as offerings of well-being to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, And read it in the hearing of the people. And they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people. And said see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. In accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was something like a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, and I'll give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he had said, wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So the broad strokes of the basic storyline of the book of Exodus so far can be outlined in three broad strokes. Really, we see Israel and Egypt. Israel in the wilderness, and then Israel at Sinai. In Egypt, uh, in chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 21, it really deals with their deliverance by God and Israel's response to that. When they're in the wilderness, chapter 15, verse 22, to chapter 18, verse 27, we see God's providence. And then in the third section, chapter 19, verse 1, all the way to the end of the book, uh, we see Israel is at Mount Sinai. Of course, this is the section that we find ourselves in today and which we'll be in for the next three days. In this particular section, God is establishing a specific covenant with Israel, and he's giving them the gift of law. This takes place from chapter 19, verse 1, all the way to chapter 24, verse 18, which we just read. After that, God gives specific instructions regarding the building of a tabernacle, as well as its leadership. We're going to get into that in the next few days, because that's chapter 25, verse 1, and takes us to chapter 31, verse 18. Then there's this narrative fit right in the middle, chapters 32, 33, and 34, outline the fall of Israel and Yahweh's restoration of Israel in that time. This is the golden calf incident. And then chapter 35, it picks up again to the end of the book, and it outlines the obedient construction of the tabernacle. And then, of course, God comes down to dwell within it. For our chapters today, in the following three days, they all share the same geographical location. They all take place at Mount Sinai. Now, chronologically, it's about a full year that the people of Israel are camped at the mountain. So this is a very significant period of time. Last Friday in your readings, you would have uh, read in chapter 21 that God says, Yahweh, sorry, says to Moses, these are the ordinances that you shall set before them. And then all of the ordinances that are enumerated in chapter 21 and 22 have continued into chapter 23, which we just read this morning. And there is a lot going on in these chapters. So just generally speaking, in chapter 21, we deal with a bunch of laws concerning Hebrew servants and personal injuries. Chapter 22 deals with various protection of property rights and social responsibility. Uh, Chapter 23 deals with laws of justice and mercy. We just read those. Sabbath laws, the three great pilgrimage feasts, as well as God sending his angel to guard and guide his people. And then in chapter 24, we just read the covenant then gets ratified. It gets confirmed between Yahweh and his people. So more specifically, these chapters are revealing um, some very, let's say, strange and unusual information. Just to highlight a few things, consider the following. We just read in chapter 23, 29. What's the point of the curious law? You shall not boil at kid or not another translation you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk what does this law reveal about the character of god or how do we handle the troubling information that god gives when he's talking about the various people groups that israel is going to encounter in their future we read it in verses 23 to 24 of exodus 23 the amorites the hittites the parasites and so forth And God says, I will blot them out. And then he instructs Israel to utterly demolish or utterly overthrow them. What are we to understand from this? Is God sanctioning the slaughter of human beings? Do sacred texts such as these condone or foster attitudes of hatred and violence? And what do we make of the interesting human behavior? Of Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders in chapter 24, verse 11. Here they are up on the mountain encountering this unique visual experience of God's holy and powerful presence. And they decide, hey, this would be a good time to sit down and have a meal. So what's that all about? What do we do with bewildering pieces of information like this? How do we interpret these passages in a responsible manner? Moreover, do these texts still hold value for modern day believers like us? To help us with our chapter readings today, and and hopefully over the next few days, I think it'd be beneficial if we touch on some big picture issues. And so what I'm going to do is just uh, list five of the issues that I would Uh, like to cover over the next few days to help us all get our heads around what all of these specific laws are trying to accomplish and what the covenant is all about. So the five issues we're going to address, number one, is wrestling with troubling texts. Number two, a proper approach to reading the Old Testament scriptures. Number three, we'd love to go more in detail about covenants. Number four, to go more specifically about law and the gift of law. And then number five, a missional emphasis. There's a strong missional emphasis uh, that we see in these passages, but not, it's not always so easy to pick up. And so we're going to come back to those five things. So let me just start out over the next seven to eight minutes. Let's start with number one big picture issue, wrestling with troubling texts. We're sometimes confronted with challenging ethical values in various texts. Um, you would have read in the narrative already from chapter 1 to 15, various things. For one, God attempts to kill Moses. <laughs> chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. You can, you can read it later. Uh, well, you would have already read it uh, prior. But God sending plagues on the Egyptians in Exodus 21. God as a lawgiver and attached to a number of the laws, what we call the put-to-death laws, all throughout chapter 21, um, chapter 31 as well, and there's a lot more in Leviticus. I already mentioned one that we encountered in today's reading, and and that's in chapter 23 that concerns Israel's future conquest of Canaan. Now I want to ask, do passages like these, and this specific one about the future conquest of Canaan, does this stir up any emotion or particular reaction within me? Does it cause you to be perplexed? Are you bothered? Are you deeply disturbed by it? Does it raise any questions for you about divine justice? If so, you would not be alone in feeling these things. John Kessler says there's likely no aspect of the Old Testament that has provoked as much ethical consternation For both ancient and modern readers of the Old Testament, as the texts that deal with the conquest of Canaan, the slaughter of its inhabitants, including women and children, and the appropriation of the land by Israel, end quote. As Christians, sometimes we're very quick to condemn the portrayals of God in other religions that we think are incorrect or offensive. But we often turn a blind eye to the troubling portrayals of God in our very own scriptures. We can't ignore or disregard difficult passages in the Bible that portray God in a questionable light. Rather, we need to acknowledge up front the profound ethical problems that texts like these give us. And we have to admit that they have the potential of being powerfully abused. As Kessler also notes, this is especially so in light of the Holocaust of World War II, the acts of ethnic cleansing in the former Yugoslavia, the Rwandan genocide, and other such atrocities. So how do we wrestle with texts like these? How do we handle them responsibly? I'd like to offer a few helpful suggestions. We ought to carefully consider the circumstances and context of each passage, as well as take into consideration what the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible says about these things or just about um, killing in general. For example, texts that describe the destruction of an entire population stands in profound tension with the majority of the Old Testament's theology of the nations and God's desire to bless the nations. This should alert us to the fact that these texts should be highly isolated within the broader teachings of the Old Testament. Secondly, we need to take responsibility for our use of these texts. We need to make it very clear that even from an Old Testament perspective, these texts do not reflect a normative vision of how we're to treat our neighbors or how we're to regard people who are outside of the community of faith we read it this morning in chapter 23 even in the laws how do you treat your enemy or people who hate you that stands in tension about going now and killing people whose land you're about to enter lastly we need to look at a text like this in light of the character of God. I like what Terence Fretheim says. He says, how does the book of Exodus answer Pharaoh's question? Who is Yahweh? Remember when Moses comes up to him, tells him to let the people go, and that was his big question. Who's this Yahweh? Readers must be careful not to jump to easy conclusions. Exodus reveals a complexity in the character of God that defies any simple description. God himself makes several claims regarding his own identity. He makes direct statements. You would have read on Friday in chapter 22, verse 27, he says, Yahweh, I am compassionate. And that prepares the readers for the climactic divine self-identification that comes later in the narrative in chapter 34. And we're going to read through these things in Exodus and all that we read in Exodus and any other book in the Old Testament. We have to read it through this lens of who God is. The God who's the subject of these sentences in the narratives we're reading is to be interpreted through this confessional lens that Israel has. So as we wrestle with these troubling texts, we must always keep in mind the self-disclosure of God. He is gracious, he's compassionate, he's merciful, and he's forgiving. And this is part of Israel's core confession of who he is, and it's how they interpreted his words and his actions. It significantly affected how they came to understand Yahweh. And this is something that we can do as well in our practice big picture number two what's a proper approach to old testament scriptures how do we as a community of followers of jesus today approach the ancient texts that are located in the old testament the bible is primarily a theological book and this means that the main focus is about god what he is like what he has said and done And it reveals his activity in creating and governing the world and his ongoing interaction with creation, especially with humanity. John Kessler notes that at its very heart, the Old Testament is the story of a relationship, how God enters into a real relationship with Israel in which both parties are called to a faithful commitment to each other. And there's a a very important word that the Old Testament uses, and it's the word hesed, and it describes the heart of that relationship. It's a hard word to translate, but it basically denotes loyalty, steadfast love, tender mercy, and unmerited forgiveness. And these are the very qualities that Yahweh displays to Israel, and in turn, He demands from Israel, and he he demands that it's shown not just towards him, but also towards other people. So when we come to the New Testament, we'll see that the situation continues. The same God, often called by the proper name Yahweh in the Old Testament, which then becomes revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the New Testament, he enters into a relationship with the human community, the church. And this relationship stands in continuity with the relationship established between Yahweh and Israel. Within this relationship, God still calls for faithfulness and obedience and qualities of character that reflect the character of God. It is Jesus who tells his hearers that it's the chesed that God demanded of old that is still called for from them today. The church, therefore, has much to learn from the Old Testament about what it means to live in relationship with God. At this point, how about we pray now for those that have to go, and I'll just take the last couple of minutes to offer five considerations of our approach to the Old Testament, and then we'll wrap it up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for your presence I thank you that you desire relationship with us and that you've gone through great lengths to do that, to accomplish that. May our response be one of grateful obedience and obligation to you, our hearts full of thanksgiving. I pray for every single person, Lord, who is leaving now and needs to go about their day. May your blessing rest upon them. May they be a tremendous blessing to everybody whose path they come across pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, can I beg your indulgence? Just five more quick minutes, and then I I promise I'll wrap it up. I'll just offer these five considerations for a proper approach to reading the Old Testament. There are many historical approaches to reading the Old Testament theologically, um, but we we can't explore all of them. There's just no time to do it. So I'll just offer these five considerations. Number one, It's important to have an approach that is sensitive to relational dynamics. In other words, how does God relate to his people? Secondly, how does his people relate to the nations? And third, how do his people relate to creation? So in all these relational dynamics, relationship is very central. And these dynamics are stable all throughout Scripture. Secondly, in our consideration, read the Old Testament text while constantly asking the question, how should the people of God respond? So in other words, what's the response God is looking for? Is it obedience? Is it trust? Is it understanding? Is it worship? You'll notice that not all of the Old Testament calls for the exact same response. Not every text we read through says the same thing. And so there's different theological traditions or streams, if you will, running through the Old Testament. So once we find what is God looking for, what's the response he wants from his people? It's not a very far leap that once we discover that, what is then God expecting of us today? How then do we incarnate? Or live out and flesh out in our lives these same things. Because really the Old Testament is about God's grace. We read through that in these last few weeks. That God has delivered Israel from bondage. This was a pure act of grace. The Old Testament is not about trying to attain relationship with God. Or trying to attain righteousness or earning God's favor. So what's the response? And we're going to look into that in the passages we just read, but we'll probably have to come back to that tomorrow because of time. The third thing is have an approach that is sensitive to diversity of the different books in the Old Testament and the progress of Revelation. For example, there's movement in the Old Testament. Things change. For example, in the garden, mankind starts out with the vegetarian diet. But then they're eventually allowed to eat meat. And then they're only allowed to eat certain kinds of meat. And then as you continue to move your way through and you get into the New Testament, Jesus comes along, Mark 14, and he declares all foods clean. We also see the progress and the movement of the different names of God and how he reveals himself to his people. So there's this movement and there is this great diversity that we see. In the theological diversity that we discover, when you read the scriptures closely, you realize this great diversity that exists. To recognize this truth will keep us from forcing just one truth into some kind of system. We like to have our theological systems, but not everything fits nicely and neatly in that. I like what my my Old Testament professor, John Kessler, says. He says it's really helpful to identify the major traditions that flow through the Old Testament, because then you can discover what God's response is, the response that that he wants from his people. And he identifies six major streams that flow through uh, Scripture. And we're going to be looking at two of them specifically because we've encountered one this morning, And over the next three mornings, we're going to encounter an entirely different tradition. And sometimes we're not aware of that because we're just reading one entire book of Exodus. But I want to point those out and explain the differences so that it'll help us interpret all of these laws as well as the covenant. Fourth, let's have an approach that is oriented to values and virtues. These exist behind most of the laws that we've read. So just really quick. Most of these laws have a fundamental commandment underlying them. We read in chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, there's this underlying value of a sincere consideration and concern for enemies and for people who hate you, for God's people. In verses 9 to 11 of chapter 23, we have this underlying virtue or value of protecting the poor the weak, and the most vulnerable in society. It even includes provision for animals, God's care for animals. And this passage is addressed to wealthy landowners who are looking to maximize profit. And so God puts laws in place to check that and to protect the vulnerable. When we read verse 12 of chapter 23, what is that all about? Well, it has the value and the virtue of rest of honoring the Sabbath, and it includes everyone in the household, all the workers, all the servants, everyone who's pitching in to help. That curious law about the young goat in verse 19, what value does that have? It has the value of not violating God's creation by simply using it for our own purposes as we see fit especially in the context of feasting, the festivals, and in the context of celebration. So the ultimate intent is God is trying to shape his people in a particular fashion with limits and boundaries. He doesn't want his people to abuse creation. They're allowed to eat a young goat in milk, but they're not allowed to cook it in its mother's milk. So in other words, Use creation, but don't abuse it or misuse it. So what we see in these different laws is there's these underlying values and virtues that God expects of His people in the Old Testament. Once we discover that, it's then easy to move forward, track it into the New Testament, and to see is God still expecting these very things of His people there. Lastly, and then we'll conclude, and that is let's have an approach. That is oriented to the spiritual formation of individuals and communities that reflect the character of God. That's what's going on here at Sinai. Is God is forming and fashioning a people for himself that reflect his own character. And so we'll end on that note. As heartstrong followers of Jesus, I want to encourage all of us to approach the Old Testament text in a way that collectively forms us. To reflect God's very character.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's Bible study. Don't forget to visit heartstrong.life to access our daily blog for even more encouragement. Visit the Heartstrong shop with all kinds of awesome merch like hoodies, t shirts, and mugs to remind you of this awesome journey of discipleship that you are on. Log in to heartstrong.life to access all your member content, resources, and downloads. We have live Bible studies for adults, students, and a Bible boot camp for kids. Let's become heartstrong disciples together.